Christ, how are you today? It's always a joy and privilege, and I just want to say, during the season of Thanksgiving, I am thankful for each and every one of you. It's easy to look out in the crowd and see these smiling faces, and it's easy to be thankful. And uh, during this holiday season, I found it easy to be thankful with those pies and those cookies and the turkey and the ham. It was so easy to be thankful looking across the table at family and friends. And also, it was easy to be thankful last night about midnight when the Texas a and Aggies beat LSU. And the Aggies were out tonight. Anyway, I'm a Texas a and graduate, so I do win we win, which is a rare occasion. I do need to mention it from the stage. Uh, but I did stay up late last night, so if I begin to stutter or slur, uh, that's the reason I, I might be the 12th man to give me a help out up here in front. To be my, my replacement if I, if I collapse. But it was definitely a, a, a great Thanksgiving season. I'm also thankful uh, for the Book of Ruth because we are continuing this sermon series on the Book of Ruth. Uh, we've gone through three weeks so far Ruth chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. And today we hit Ruth chapter 4 and we conclude our sermon series on the Book of Ruth. And it's been really an incredible journey. I love this book, just looking, searching, going deeper into the meaning of this text. I have been richly blessed, and I hope that you have as well. But just to give you a recap of what has happened, we kind of left last week. Jake preached a fantastic sermon on Ruth chapter 3, but he kind of left us with a cliffhanger. And I don't know if you had tough time sleeping this week, you know, wondering what's going to happen in the rest of this book. But the way the book starts... Is there's a family. You have Elimelech. Elimelech is married to Naomi. And Naomi and Elimelech, they have two sons, Mahlon and Kilion. And they're from the town of Bethlehem. And there is this family. So they decide to leave their land, their homeland in Bethlehem, and travel to a foreign land of Moab. And there, while they are in Moab, this family begins to plant roots. Their sons meet and marry Moabite women. In fact, the oldest son marries a woman named Ruth, who was a Moabite. And as the story goes, it's a tragic story, but Elimelech dies. And then the next thing you know, Mahlon dies, and Kilion dies, and it leaves just Naomi with her two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Naomi. And as custom, she, Naomi, frees these two females to go back to their fathers, because there they would receive and, and, and uh, they would have the food and, and shelter they needed. And so Orpah takes that advice and goes back to live with her family. But Ruth, in this very moment, she says that very famous line. It's on a, a thousand bumper stickers on those stickers that you find on the, on the, uh, the back of the cars. Where you go, I will go. I will follow where you follow. Your God is my God. Your people is my people. And this, in essence, was Ruth saying to Naomi, I am converted. I am converted to, to, to your God. I want to follow you wherever you go. I am with you to protect you and to be by your side. You are not alone. So in Ruth chapter 1, they go back to Bethlehem. And you can see that Naomi is just sad. And she's, she's discouraged and depressed. In fact, she changes her name from Naomi to bitter. And she goes there and just is the only way that they can find food is for Ruth to go to this field and harvest the second-hand crops where, where the owners missed on their first time around. 
and there she meets a man named Boaz. Well, Naomi and Boaz, Naomi and Ruth, they connive and say, well, let's, let's try to get Boaz to be our guardian redeemer. He can be the one that can protect our family and provide for us. So in Ruth chapter 3, Jay preached a fantastic sermon about how Ruth snuck into the barn and laid at the feet of Boaz. She went to Estelada before the encounter with the makeup on. And Boaz likely saw him. He got a hint and he said, listen, I would love to be your guardian redeemer. I am told you are beautiful. I want to be this. But here's the problem. Is that there is someone, a relative, who's closer in the, in the line. And he has to decide first. It is his choice. And if he declines this, then I will be your guardian redeemer. But if he accepts, there's nothing I can do. And that is where chapter 3 left off. And we were left to wonder what was going to happen. Well, in Ruth chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there, here. Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. The story continues. And this story begins at the city gates of Jerusalem. In verse 1 of chapter 4. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. And just to recap, a guardian redeemer is someone in the extended family who can help a family who has gone through some tough times where their possessions were in danger of being lost. And this guardian redeemer had two jobs. Number one, this guardian redeemer, he was meant to take control over the property, to buy the property so they could stay within the family lineage. The second job was to help create an heir. And I'll let Jake explain how that happens next term if you have any questions about how that can happen. But the job of the guardian redeemer is to marry the women who are, who are from this line and help the way they can to create an heir, to take over the property when this heir grows to be older. So in, in, in chapter 2, Boaz, in verse 2 of chapter 4, Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And he did so. And then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. So here, Boaz, just this amazing guy. We talked about his good looks a couple weeks ago. But not only is he good looking, but he is smooth. You can see here, here, working this deal. He says, here, I have this property here. Elimelech's family is back in town, and the property is for sale. Do you want it? And of course, his guardian redeemer says, yeah, this property, I will take it. I mean, I would love more land for my family. And I imagine that Ruth and Naomi were there sitting in the, in the background. They were watching this happen, and they were almost stunned. They were saying, this is not how it's supposed to go. He should say no. Boaz is supposed to be the one that's our guardian redeemer, not 
this other guy? But Boaz, the smooth, the smooth player, like Charlton Heston, he just gets there with his deep voice. In verse 5, on the day that Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, I want to tell you this. You also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, the deepest property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. You see what this guardian redeemer was thinking about? The first question he was thinking just about the land. And he knew that it would be a tremendous investment. Who knows the state of this land over the past years that Elimelech and his family were off in Moab. There may have been invaders on that property. The, the land had probably not been, been had, had crossed in so many years. And so there was going to be a tremendous amount of investment, monetary investment, to get this land back and running. But when he heard that there was a young female attached to this land, that he was going to be the guardian redeemer, he knew that this would not be the wise business decision. Because if, if Ruth became pregnant with a male heir, then automatically that land would, be, would belong to this male heir. And all this investment and capital that he had put forward to, to improve this land would be for nothing. Because then it would be for this new male heir, the son of Ruth. Not only that, but Ruth was a disgusting, despicable, unclean Moabite. And so this garden weaver decides to pass. And the plan is complete. So how did, they, how did they do this? Well, verse 7, Now in earlier times in Israel for the redemption of the transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. How many of you want to vote that from here on out the elders make decisions on this method? How about they come to meetings wearing sandals and every decision is made, they just pass sandals back and forth? Shaking your head, no. It would, you may not smell the best in that room. Uh, but, but this is after, this is based on a law in Deuteronomy 25 where if a guardian redeemer does not choose to take exercise his power to protect the family, then he would give a sandal as a symbol to somebody else. It also says in Deuteronomy 25 that the woman has the right to spit in his face. <laughs> but Naomi and Ruth did not exercise that because they were excited that, that Boaz closed this deal. Well, in verse 9, then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are my witnesses that I have brought from that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malah. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite. He just can't, he can't stop saying Moabite. He's, it's always in his mind. Ruth, the Moabite, Malah's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the, the, the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are my witnesses. In verse 11, then the elders and all the people at the gate said, this is a done deal. We are witnesses. The deal is done. The deal is closed. Now, Boaz has assumed the responsibility of being the guardian redeemer. And then now the elders look at this transaction. They give two blessings. The first blessing is for Boaz and for Ruth. And the second blessing we read later on is for uh, Naomi. But the first blessing in 11 is, May the Lord 
Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. So what do, what do Rachel and Leah have in common? Both of these women were unable at one point in their life to conceive a child. And by the help and by the grace of God, they were able to conceive. And so the blessing uh, upon Ruth was that, these, that, that, that they, she would be able to conceive a child just like Rachel and Leah. And now we have the blessing on Boaz in the second part of the letter. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. So Perez was Judah's son, one of the twin sons, and he has he was the beginning of the line that leads to King David. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive. And she gave birth to a son. The woman, the women, said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Mother-in-law's this is the highest compliment, I guess, to give to a daughter-in-law. That you are as good as seven sons. At least this was, was a huge compliment back in the new ancient Near East. Because sons were, were, were valuable in that day and age. So this was the highest compliment. Seven. This, this holy number. Seven sons that Ruth was. In verse 16. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Did you guys hear that last sentence? This is the kicker. Imagine if you were reading or hearing this story for the very first time back in the ancient Near East, and you were there listening, and you learned that Ruth, the Moabite, this unclean woman, was the great grandmother of mighty King David. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Imagine the reaction in the crowd. There was probably a gasp. Of, this was a twist in the ending. The, the, the movie wasn't supposed to end this way. But when, they, when these readers read this, they could not believe it. This was a direct lineage to the greatest king of all of Israel. You have Obed. You have Jesse. And then you have David. These are names that everybody knew. This was Israel's Hall of Fame. It was their Mount Rushmore. And the book finishes with a, a longer, more detailed genealogy that begins with Perez and ends with David. And it says that Boaz is the great grandfather of David. And Ruth is the great grandmother. And you pause when this is over. And you're stunned. And you have your breath back. Wow, what an amazing story. What an amazing story. And then you ask, how did this make it in the Bible? Why is this, why is this story in this holy text? Why is it so that this book, Ruth, 
the protagonist is a female in a world that was very male-dominated. Why in this text is Ruth constantly referred to as Ruth the Moabite? Why is it important to point out that David's great-grandmother was not a Jew by nationality? And even after the conversion, she's still referred to as Ruth the Moabite. Well, to get a greater idea of why this text has such great significance, you need to look back on when it was written and to what purpose. Because most scholars believe that Ruth was written in the 5th century B.C., after the exile. If you guys know much about Jewish history, the Jews were conquered by the Babylonians, and they were sent to live outside of their homeland. It's called the exile. Then the Persians conquered the Babylonians, and they sent the Jews back to Jerusalem to rebuild. And there are certain texts that were written around this time about how the Jewish faith had to rebuild after their exile in the foreign land. There's books like Ezra and Nehemiah. These are books that were written around the same time as the book of Ruth. And in that time, as you look at Ezra and Nehemiah, one of their main strategies in restoring the faith of Israel and getting things back to the way they were, one of their main strategies was to outlaw, to put to outcast, to push away anybody who did not have Jewish blood, who anybody who was outside. In fact, if you look at Ezra chapter 10, the last chapter in Ezra, it writes, on, on that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water but had hired Balaam to, curse or to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, this is how serious they took it. When they heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Moabites, Amabites, anyone who wasn't of pure Jewish blood was excluded from the community. Nehemiah goes into even more in Nehemiah chapter 13. Talks about this very moment. In verse 1 of 13 it says, Then Ezra, the priest, stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honor the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. You see, right now, we, through the blessing of the biblical text, we are given a, a glimpse into a spiritual conversation of that day and age. The question that they were asking was, who can have access to God? Who has access to God? Who can, be, can claim to be God's people? And if you are of Ezra and Nehemiah under their line of thinking, their reaction was to reject foreigners. Their reaction was to, to keep the circle even smaller, to tighten, to tighten up the table, to make it more exclusive, to limit exposure to the heathens, to those who were unclean. Their, their strategy was to only find people that were exactly like them so they could maintain purity in their religion. But Ruth, Ruth, 
directly confronts this line of thinking, of Ezra's thinking, rejection of foreigners, and reveals that God can be used, that God can use anyone regardless of their nationality. The book of Ruth, in this spiritual conversation that we have a glimpse of, Ruth confronts unhealthy nationalism. It confronts racism. It confronts bigotry. It confronts prejudices. It, it confronts misogyny. This book is a, a, a powerful voice in the conversation of who God can use and who are the people that God can have access to. The discussion continues in the New Testament. I mean, it's crazy how, how this continues because in Matthew chapter 1, this law of genealogy, it goes about who's who's who in the genealogy. Well, if you read in 3, verses 3 through 6, I'm not going to read it because there's a bunch of names that are hard to pronounce and I don't want to be embarrassed. But if you notice, there's four women, only four women that are mentioned in Matthew chapter 1's genealogy. Rahab, Tamar, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Four women in the lineage from Perez all the way down to Jesus. Four women, Rahab, Tamar, Ruth, and Bathsheba. What, what is the commonality between these four women? Number one, they are not of Jewish descent. Rahab and Tamar, they're Canaanites. Ruth was a Moabite, and Bathsheba was married to a Hittite. This very text in Ruth and Matthew it reveals this tendency that we have as humans, doesn't it? The tendency that we have as humans is that when we think of God, when we think of the divine, when we think of who are God's people, sometimes the tendency is, is we think that God is just like us. We think that God thinks like us. We think that God looks like us. We think that God is a representation, a, a bigger and more grandiose version of who we are. We think that God, the divine, is just like us. In fact, sometimes we fall into the trap as Americans. Sometimes we think that God, the divine, is an American. Sometimes we think that. We fall into the thought that we think God is an American, that God speaks English, and that God cheers the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, if you were a Russian, I can imagine sometimes thinking that God would be Russian, speaks Russian, and prefers vodka over whiskey. Or if you were a Peruvian, sometimes it might be easy, the human tendency to think, well, that God must be Spanish. God must be a Peruvian. Because that's the only thing that I have access to is knowing myself and to know, to try to get a glimpse of who God is. We only draw from the data that we have. So it's, it's a, a human tendency to think that God acts and thinks and looks just like we are. It's human nature to think that God prefers people just like us. But thank goodness, Scripture speaks against this tendency. Anytime that we see in Scripture, anytime we see and try to limit access to God by nationality or ethnicity, Scripture says, uh, not so fast. Let me tell you about Ruth, the Moabite. Let me tell you about Tamar. Let me tell you about Rahab. These are people who were used by God and they weren't a part of the chosen people of that day. Anytime we try to limit access to God by gender, Scripture says, mm, not so fast. 
Let me read you Matthew chapter 1. Look at these four women who were used by God in great ways, took great risks and are a part of this epic story. Anytime that we try to limit access to God by morality, Scripture says, mm -mm, not so fast. Don't think you're better than everybody else. In fact, Romans 3, we all fall short and stumble. Uh, we all fall short in facing God. According to the text, according to Scripture, according to the story that we have, God does not have a favorite country. God is not an American. God is not a Russian. God is not a Peruvian. God in the Scripture is a God of all. A God of every nation, tongue, and tribe. To end this sermon, I'd like to ask you a question and then to give a challenge based on this text, Ruth chapter 4. The question is this, to think about it, maybe write down on your notes if you have if you want to. Who are you in this story? If you were to role play, if you were to step in to Ruth, the book of Ruth, in the story, what part would you naturally play? Would you fall over line with the tendency of thinking of Ezra and Nehemiah? The idea that the circle would need to be smaller, being people that are just like you, and this is a real thing in today. And I think this is something that was a spiritual sickness then, and it's a spiritual sickness now. I don't know if you read that FBI report that just came out last week, but in this report it stated that the number of hate crimes in 2017 rose by 17% compared to 2016. That we are seeing an increase in hate crimes within this country, which is against the teachings of Jesus, against the teachings of God. The FBI continued to say that crimes that were motivated by race or ethnicity rose 18% in 2017, accounted for the majority of all incidents reported with hate crimes, specifically targeting African Americans representing the greatest share, while anti-Arab hate crimes increased 100%. This is a spiritual issue, and as Christians, we can speak against such crimes and such hate because Scripture teaches us that God doesn't play this game. God doesn't play this game, and we shouldn't either. So who are we in the story? Are you Boaz? Have you taken a risk? Have you judged someone based on the content of their character instead of the color of their skin? Are you Ruth? Have you taken a, a great risk and, and a leap of faith to do something that would help the family and those around you? Now, when you think about who you are in the story, there is one individual in this book of Ruth whose name was never mentioned. And this is a, a, a huge deal because in this book, it's all about names and significance. Do you know whose name was mentioned? The Garden Redeemer. The first guy. The guy who was first in line when he rejected the, the call. You see, if we were to look at this and analyze the decision, it was probably a wise financial move. I mean, he probably did a spot analysis in his head. He looked at the pros and cons. He looked at how much it would cost. And he realized, no, no, this is not a good investment. This is too risky. I am not going to do this. And so I will give my, my share to this guy named Boaz. And I'm not going to risk it. He made the reasonable decision. 
It wasn't in his best interest financially. And he made a decision that was safe, that was sensible. And as a result, we don't know his name. Because there's no reason to remember his name. Because he's not a part of the story. His calculated response, his decision, eliminated him from playing a greater role in the history of his people. He saved his money. He saved his money, but he lost out on a greater inheritance. The inheritance that Boaz was able to take that led to King David. And here is the challenge to end today. The challenge is to live out your faith in God in some way that is spontaneous, sometimes that is not, calcul that not calculated, in a way that allows you to live in to this greater story and contributes to those that are around you. You know, we can take care of our own estate. We can calculate effectively. We can play it safe. And we can be like Orpah, who went back and lived with her dad. We can be like Mr. No Name, who we have no idea who he was because he did play it safe and didn't take any risks when it came to his faith and who he dealt with and who he interacted with. Or the alternative is we can live lives non-calculated, extravagant, overflowing, soul-emptying grace with that of compassion and loving kindness. A kind of grace that doesn't make sense. A kind of life that you can't explain it away in a SWOT analysis. You can't have the pros and cons. A kind of grace and love and compassion where the world will look at with confusion. That is a challenge for us as a community to be spontaneous and to do something crazy based on our faith. We can live lives and help those around us in a great way. It could be sitting in a different pew. That's risky on a Sunday. Sitting in a different pew that you normally sit in, talking with someone different. It could be taking a different route to work. It could be eating lunch at a different table. It could be something spontaneous, as small as that, or something as great as taking a trip randomly across the world to help somebody. But that's a challenge on Ruth, is that we have an opportunity to be a part of a greater story. That story requires faith. That, that story requires us to sometimes take a chance of people who show overflowing grace and kindness to those who are like us and also those that are different. Each week, we also offer an invitation for those who want to be baptized and follow this Lord and Savior who we have gathered together in Jesus. He is the reason why we are here. He lived this out each and every day. If you also need prayers, I'll be up here at the front with the elder on the side. But let us live with extravagant, non-calculated grace and love, just like we see in this movie. Why don't you come to this